I just want to welcome everybody. It's fantastic to have such a good audience. It's going to be a tremendous occasion this evening. I'm, I'm Tim Allen. I'm the uh, director of the Virology Centre for Africa. And this is one of many events that we've been organising. Um, some of you I hope to see again in three weeks' time when we have our, our Africa Summit. But my job at the moment is to get off the stage as fast as possible so that I can hand it over to uh, Tina Pham. Tina Pham is going to uh, chair this evening's session. She's um, uh, a CEO of a consulting firm which advises on corporate governance in sub-Saharan Africa. She's got, these glasses are really awful. I hope no one's taking a photograph of me with these glasses. They got a bit broken and they go all wonky when I start to get emotional and they fall off my nose. She's governor of the she's the governor of the school, member of the governing council, and chair of the audit committee. I don't know what that does. Does that work out where all the money all the money goes? It does. Yeah. <laughs> Tina is also a commissioner of the Independent Commission for Aid Impact, uh, the independent body responsible for scrutiny of UK aid. And from 2005 to 14, Tina served as governor of the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, the UK's leading democracy building foundation, yes. working to strengthen parliaments and support greater democratic accountability in post-conflict and fragile states. Um, whilst there, she made a significant contribution to WFD's work supporting women in public life through the delivery of transformational training programs for women, parliamentarians, and civil society leaders in the Middle East and Africa. So we could have no better chair for this evening's event. So let me welcome you again and uh, let the... Let the ceremony can commence. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Tim. That's a, um, uh, a very in-depth introduction. I didn't think anyone actually read those biographies. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Um, as Tim has indicated, I've spent many years uh, working on women's leadership and women's empowerment um, as an African woman myself. Uh, this is a very proud day for me. Um, I'm delighted to be here um, on behalf of the Ferroz Alaji Centre for Africa to welcome three amazing women to the LSE. Dr. Joyce Mujuru, Dr. Namata Majex Walker, and Miss Fadumo Daib. Today, we start our celebrations for International Women's Day. These are women leaders on the global stage and they are changing the political landscape in Africa. Our speakers span the African continent, east, west and south, and they will bring to us this evening insights on the challenges they have faced in driving forward the political agenda for women. We all know that politics can be an unpredictable game. Just think back over the last 12 months. And a dangerous one too, 
especially if you are a woman seeking political office in Africa. But today, we will have an opportunity to turn down the negative mood music on Africa and hear from women who I believe will inspire us and will give us hope that there is a better future for that continent. Their stories of determination, courage and triumph in the face of adversity is exactly what women and girls need to hear, not only across the African continent, but across the globe right now. It's important that we hold true to the belief that the change we are seeking can happen. It's not an empty dream, but something that we can achieve with faithful persistence and a belief in our goals. So we have a very promising evening in store. As chair of the event, I'm going to have to update you on a number of uh, housekeeping issues. The first is that um, the event is being recorded and a podcast will be made of this evening's event subject to there being no technical issues. I would also ask that um, if you haven't done so already, you put your mobile phones on, on silent, switch them off would even be better. And for Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for this evening's event is uh, hashtag LSE Women. In terms of uh, running order, what I'm aiming to do is to invite each speaker um, to make a presentation. So we'll have three presentations, one after another, and thereafter the floor will be open to questions and answers. I'm going to start then by inviting our first speaker to make her presentation. Uh, first speaker is um, Fadumo Daib. She is the first woman to run in the presidential elections of Somalia. She also pioneered human rights activism in Africa with over 12 years experience as a healthcare practitioner focused on public health prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV in Somalia, Kenya, Liberia, Fiji and Finland. Fadumo is a 2015 Mason Fellow at the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard University and a PhD Fellow at the University of Helsinki researching women, peace and security issues in the Horn of Africa and within the framework of UNNCR 1325. In 2014, Fadumo was awarded Feminist of the Year by the Feminist Association Union and received the prestigious African Woman of the Year Award in 2016. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Ms. Fadumo Dayin.
So Bianca, could you help me to keep time so that I'm not going to take it into Joyce's and um, um, others' uh, presentation? Good evening, I'm Faduma Daib. It's a pleasure being here. I'm actually very honored to be addressing you. I actually don't have written notes. I'm going to speak from my heart as I normally do. You might be wondering why I decided to run for the presidency in Somalia. I get asked this question quite a lot, particularly when I was never interested in politics. I'm not a politician per se. I don't make a living out of politics. I decided to run because I felt it was a moral obligation, it was a civic duty to do something about the situation in Somalia. At the time when I declared my candidacy in September 2014, I had considered the challenges that I would be facing. And I thought I was very prepared for those challenges. And I think I still am. I knew that by stepping forward, I was going to ruffle a lot of feathers. We have had female presidential candidates in Somalia, but I think they ran because they wanted to make a statement. It wasn't really a serious endeavor. They didn't want to run the race all the way to the end. But I wanted to change that. And I felt it was important that I should do this. Because I wasn't going to just do it for myself, I was going to do it also for the millions of girls and women in Somalia who felt that leadership was perhaps only meant for men, particularly above the age of 50 with graying hair who come from a, you know, a privileged, entitled background, and that this was something that was completely out of their reach and touch. And I actually came to realize that was a narrative, that was a perception that was held by a lot of other African countries. So I thought, since Somalia is a very important country to me, and 12 million Somalis are important to me, and I have always watched from the sidelines hoping that one day we would have a leader who would bring us back home, and when that wasn't forthcoming, I realized I was that leader and was going to step forward. And so in September 2014, when I declared my candidacy, the next day I lost quite a lot of important relationships. As time went, I faced several challenges, which I think we should honestly speak about so that 
the next time we have female politicians or candidates coming forward, they would know what is waiting for them out there. The biggest challenge was really the cultural, um, particularly the clan-based system. It's a system that excludes women, it excludes the youth. In my mind, it is a system that is akin to the Hindu caste system. It's a system that is premised on supremacy that believes four major clans are more important than the point fives or the subhumans as I really came to see them, or that was the understanding that you know was premised on this clan uh, power sharing system. And since I was a woman and the clan didn't recognize my existence or my membership, I was caught between two, two clans, you know, the clan that I came from and the one that I married into and had children for. The other one was really religion or the way it was misinterpreted or misused to try and silence me. All of a sudden, I was an infidel. I was someone who deserved to be killed, someone who was going against the religion by declaring her candidacy and her belief that every woman has the right to, to step forward and be seen and heard and to be visible. <laughs> I challenged that narrative and I said that I don't believe that is what Islam stands for and I still challenge that narrative. Islam is a peaceful religion. It has nothing to do with the minorities who are hell-bent on subjugating women using religion by any means necessary to silence them. The other challenge that I faced was really the lack of finances. We're very aware, I think acutely aware, that without finances you can't actually go far in politics. Fundraising was a big issue. Because my clan wasn't going to do that, I had already given up on my clan. I had disassociated myself from my clan, so that venue was closed off to me. I also didn't get a lot of support from the women that I thought would come forward and really fundraise on my behalf, or help me to at least be able to, to, to fundraise. Because I came to the realization that within that group, sometimes there's the misunderstanding that perhaps women think and act all the same. But that isn't really the reality, it's not the truth. The biggest resistance I got didn't come from men, it came from some women. And I'm not talking about that Somali mother that is losing her children, that is unable to send her children to school. I'm talking about women who were highly educated, who were from the diaspora, who called themselves feminists, but for some reason felt that they couldn't support me or they couldn't um, want to see someone like me running for office. 
And this, I understand, is a challenge not only in Somalia but across uh, the world. And that is the challenge that perhaps Hillary Clinton also faced when more than 64% of the white women voted for Trump. Despite all those challenges, did I give up? I didn't finish the race this January. Not because I wasn't able to master the 30,000 US dollars that was required for the registration. It was because I had to get the endorsement of 20 lawmakers in order to proceed to, having, to making my candidacy official. I had to pay bribes to these 20 lawmakers. And I felt it was against my principles and values. And I stopped there because I did not want to come into office through corrupt means. I believe Somalia has had corrupt leaders. They didn't need one more who was going to try and come into office by any means necessary, including by doing something that was unconstitutional because the 4.5 clan-based system is not premised on the Somali constitution. And so when I was faced with that moral dilemma, I decided to step aside and let, let that be. Because I know that I am in this for the long term. I actually believe that leaders need to walk the talk. We need to show an example. And I am acutely aware, after having visited Somalia, that what I am doing is really instigating social change. Politics is only one venue. There are many other venues, such as you know, changing cultural norms and challenging the misinterpretation of Islam. And I know change can only come when it is sustained for a prolonged period. I am willing to do this for the next 10, 15, 20 years at whatever risk. Even after having lost very dear friends, very dear relationships as a result of stepping forward, but I believe this is a train that is moving forward. Those who weren't supposed to be on that train will have to get off. And perhaps it makes it easier to get quicker to the destination that I'm heading towards. So what have I, have I learned from running for office? <laughs> I have actually realized how important Somalia is and how important 12 million Somalis are. I've also come to the realization that you will be ridiculed, you will be laughed at, you will be called names, you will be threatened. I went from being a mother of four children, a very respected figure, to being reduced to verbal abuse, really a lot of online bullying, 
and whatnot, but I believe that really strengthened my reserve. It made me understand that I was on the right track, I was doing something right, because why else would I be getting death threats? Why else would I be getting all this resistance? And I would like to finish this talk by saying that if we gave up every time we faced stiff resistance or we were challenged, I don't think we would be able to make any change in, in life. If you know what you are doing is the right thing, to me this was a vocational calling and still is, then you will continue doing what you're supposed to do. And so for me this is just the start. This is really the starting point and I will continue this journey. And I hope in 2020, when we have democratic elections, that we will have women breaking you know, the ceiling and coming into office. We are not stopping this and we are not negotiating for space. We are here and we are not going away. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Fadumo, for that uh, very inspiring presentation. Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Nemata Majex Walker, who is the founder and first president of the 5050 organization, a non-partisan organization advocating and campaigning for an increased political participation and equal representation of women in decision-making processes and initiatives at all levels in Sierra Leone. Her work with the 5050 group saw the organisation become the first African group and the third globally to win the coveted Madeleine Albright Award in 2007. Dr Majex Walker is committed to women's empowerment and this is not just limited to Sierra Leone. She was instrumental in ensuring that women in Liberia produced a women's manifesto and she also trained prospective women candidates for the October 2005 general election which ushered in the first female president in West Africa. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Good evening, everybody. I'm so happy to see you. Oh, I, th I thought you were going to respond. <laughs> Please respond. Good evening. Right. I, what can I say after such a powerful woman? Faduma, you are an example of everything the 50-50 group stands to fight against. Thank you very much.
it is very refreshing and exhilarating to know that there are women like Faduma around in this world. Congratulations and keep up. Stay focused, madam. You'll become president one day. Mark my words. Now, the 50-50 experience in Sierra Leone. Um, Sierra Leone is a country which many of you might have Googled about. We are on the west coast of, we are on the west coast of Africa, and we have we suffered from a very brutal 11-year um, rebel war. I'm sure you've heard about women, children, sons being caught. I'm sure you've heard about that. Not so. When people were ears were chopped off women's bellies were split open and the children were taken out. I don't want to dwell on that, but let me tell you what happened. After the 11 years rebel war in Sierra Leone, or do you know how that war came to an end? That war came to an end because the women of Sierra Leone were the first to lead a delegation, a protest to the house of the rebel leader for the Sanko and demanded peace. And during that protest, 19 women were killed. In spite of that, when, war, when peace returned to Sierra Leone, it was business as usual. Even though peace had been achieved through the blood, sweat, and tears of women and, and young girls and young people, it was business as usual. The positions in government were given to the men, and the women were relegated to the back seat. Is that fair? Do you think that is fair? No. Right. So we decided that we want to be part of the peace that we brought about. We took part in ensuring that there was peace. We should not be left behind. We should take part in managing the peace. And so we decided that since women constitute 50% of Sierra Leone's population, you should have reflected that in the elected body, bodies. At least you should have selected 30% of women. Let me tell you that before the group was founded, there were only eight women out of 124 members of parliament in my country. There were only two women out of 24 cabinet ministers. There were, we didn't have any mayors or council chairs. There were only about 40%, 4% of women in executive, in, in the political parties' executive committees. In fact, whenever you have women in political parties, they have what you, what is known as the women's wings. You know what wings are? They are not in the center. They have their own wing. And you know that if you are not in the center, you are not playing an important part. So we still have these political parties' wings that we are all, we sort of resisted. We wanted women, if there is a woman, if there is a man as head, the woman should be vice president. If, the, if there is a woman as head, a man should be vice president. But we don't. There were only about 10% in local councils. So I was determined to reverse the situation. And I announced this in the name of the group that I found, the 50-50 group. I'm sure you can guess what that means. What does it mean? <laughs> Can you guess? Uh, what does 50-50 mean? 50-50 women. Thank you. 50. Okay, we fight for women's equal representation with men in all spheres of governance, especially in parliament and local councils. Right. 
I should tell you that the group, the mission of the group, we are a nonpartisan campaign for more women in politics and poly public life. But it's, the important bit is we do that through training because politics is a new field for women. We have been brought up to believe that politics is the preserve of men. Men have the monopoly. So we decided that since we want to encourage our women to take part, we have to train them. So we do it through structured training. Our vision is equality for all. Our vision is a female president in Sierra Leone. We want to ensure that there is a share, a, an equal share of political power. We aim to change the public's perception of women. People feel like people felt that Faduma should be killed. She was an infidel. People feel that a woman's place is in the kitchen, a woman should not speak loud, a woman's voice should not be heard, and we sort of said, we are going to change this. A woman's place is as much in the kitchen as it is in Parliament. I have a t-shirt to show you that. So our, our barriers, our, our objectives were, one, to advocate against the barriers against women in politics. We wanted those barriers to be removed. When I tell you what our barriers are, you will understand what Fatuma went through. When she was speaking, I thought I was speaking. You will hear, you will soon hear. We wanted to increase women's participation in politics and other decision-making bodies. We also wanted to lobby for the zipper system. One man, one woman, one man, one woman, like a zip. And we also wanted... <laughs> We also wanted to encourage women to vie for parliament. Remember, even you as a woman sitting there now, if I say to you, you, come and take part in politics, the first thing you will say to me, oh, me? Politics is not for me. Oh, no, it's a dirty game. You always be, you behave as if it is something that is... Is that not so? <laughs> well, there are many Fadumas out there, I'm happy. <laughs> right, good. Right, so um, we... Right, now I go back to what Faduma has said. After you've said this, I really don't think I should go through this. One of our analytical tools, we start off by telling the women about the barriers that will prevent them from taking part. And we say to them, you can overcome these barriers. She started by talking about culture, because they see politics as a man's game and a woman's place is in the kitchen. Lack of solidarity among women gives men the upper hand. Didn't you say there were so many, the biggest challenge you had was with the women? It's all over the world, it's not just in Somalia, my dear. Caring for the, <laughs> caring for the children and other members of the family. Women have to carry for the man, the politician man, the non-politician man, the children, the boys, the troublesome sons. I have a troublesome son, so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> So because women have to care for all of that, when will she have time for politics? She's cash-trapped. You said it. I didn't. I, you, you, you experienced it. So what I'm saying is the fact. Women is, the women are cash-trapped. They never have enough money to go into politics. They lack confidence. We, we, have, we, we regard it as elevencies. They lack confidence. As soon as you say take part, many of our women are ill-educated. They are nervous. They, don't, they cannot stand in public and speak. They, they, they worry. If, if, if many of them were like Faduma who would stand the test, then I would have said yes. But many of them have to be trained. That is why we train them. We nurture them. We sort of mold them into becoming tough women. Like I molded this woman sitting here now. I'm so proud to see you, Agnes. <laughs> She's one of our foundation members. I, I was shocked when I saw her walking into the hall. 
<laughs> anyway, <laughs> we also women also see politics as a dirty game. It's corrupt. It's this and that. They don't want it. Lack of court. There is a special place in hell for women who don't support each other. Faduma. <laughs> Faduma, Faduma, that was said by Madeleine Albright, so you can use it next time. <laughs> but then we have to urge our women to support each other, honestly. Then there is also um, lack of cooperation, there is constitutional constraints, the constitution condemns and prohibits discrimination, but it is most constitutions in the world are silent on discrimination in politics. Capability, I was looking for a C for education, and I just changed it to capability. Majority of our women in Africa are illiterate. Conism, men benefit from old boys' networks, women don't. Women, we fight each other, we envy each other. Communication, there is poor communication most of the time among women. Faduma, so you believe, you believe me? Now that she has said it, I'm sure you believe me, don't you? Yes. <laughs> she actually experienced it. Now let me tell you about the the imperative urgency with which we set up the 50-50 group. We were taught, in fact, I dedicate this presentation to Leslie Abdallah. I wish she will hear this. She was the one who came from England. She had formed the 300 group, and she came to Sierra Leone to train us about how to increase women's participation in politics. And she advised us that one way in which you can launch your group is by doing it in the House of Parliament. I was determined. So we decided to have the launching in the House of Parliament. And we decided to have a mock president and a mock state opening of Parliament. This is, this is us, all women, with our mock speaker, mock so-and-so on the day. In essence, we took over parliament for one day. We said we were in charge. We are going to have our own state opening. And there were over 1,000 women. And you know, the head of state, Alaji Tijan Kaba, was the one who launched the group. So we really came out with a big bang. This was the, did I show you the, yeah, the next one should be the, this was the mock female <laughs> mock female president inspecting her guard of honor. And you see, it was mounted by the all-female police. There are so many people in this room who were there, so I'm not telling lies, honestly. And do you know, after that, what we did? We had a debate in the well of parliament. We had a debate. We had the ruling party and the opposition, and we debated on the need for 50% representation in parliament. And she was the youngest. Stand up, Agnes Antiki I'm happy. I was so shocked to see her here. She was the youngest person who took part in the debate. And I'm so proud of her. She was nervous, but she took part in that debate that day. And she's a foundation member of the 50-50. Right. And then now, after that, the next thing we, do was to, we did was to um, develop a women's manifesto in which we, did, we decided that we'll include all the needs of women and we will use it as a tool to talk to part political parties. We say to them, put this information in your manifesto. To. You have to, your manifesto must reflect the needs of our women. If, the, if your manifesto does not reflect the needs of our women, we won't vote for you. <laughs> but did that do anything? Well, we continue to do that. We continue to use it as a weapon. Right. And then we also organize training. As I said to you, because women 
do not believe politics is for them. They still see it as a monopoly for men, of men. We go through a, a training, we, we go through a three-phase training. Right now, we are busy training potential aspirants, encouraging them to take part. We develop training manuals. We run campaign training schools. We organize face-to-face, um, -face, sometimes residential training for women aspirants, and also when they are nominated, we teach them about how to become how to join a political party, all the different skills they live, and then when they are nominated, we ask them to we, we, we also organize another training for them. These are some of the manuals we have, we have um, developed and we also, I mean that is a training class now the most important thing is we, we use this as a we use this as one of our analytical tools and um, I really want you to sing this song. <laughs> I want to teach you. Do you want to learn it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now let us stand up and let us sing. <laughs> Now we also, we use that as one of our analytical tools, and we also use stickers and posters and all sorts of things to get people to vote for women and to encourage them to be voted. One of the stickers, this is our t-shirt, it's in my bag over there, a woman's place is in the House of Parliament, right? Women, women have the right to vote and be voted for. Smart women, this is our time to transform Sierra Leone, do the right thing, come with 10 other women and vote. A man should not be afraid of women in search of equality. We have so many of those stickers that we use, right? We also organize road shows, like right now we'll be organizing road shows. We get women who are vulnerable, sick women, we drive them to the registration centers and help them to register. The illiterate ones, we teach them, you know. Now, so far, our successes, we've, we've succeeded in getting 50% of women in ward committees, that is in the lower level of the local councils. Four out of 24 full cabinet ministers and seven deputy ministers right now. We are very proud of that. It's not 50%, but it's a big leap. 13.5 female MPs in parliament, 7% female males, 11% of women in executive committees, 18.5 in local councils. Now we also have the first female minority leader of parliament in Sierra Leone was trained and mentored by the 50-50 group. 50-50 clubs have been set up in eight schools, just like Rotary does. I'm a, I'm a past president of Rotary, the first female president of Rotary in Sierra Leone. And I try to follow the Rotary way. We've set up, um, like Rotaract, Interact, we've set up clubs in schools, and we have set up a 50-50 club at FRAB College. After the 2007 campaign, two districts had females who stood in the, as independent candidates for the first time, women and the won. Faduma, don't give up. You will win. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, we spared, I'm sure you, uh, my talk will not be complete if I don't mention Ebola. During the Ebola campaign, we, because we are such an organized and visible group, we succeeded in addressing women's health needs. We spearheaded uh, um, the, the organization of what we refer to as wrestle, women's response to Ebola Sierra Leone. We played our part in, in bringing an end to Ebola, and we also docu documented her stories in order to have a formal record of women's stories during the EVD, and to ensure that women's perspectives and experiences were memorialized and shared. Additionally, this served as a trauma healing and empowerment tool. If you want to see that, we'll show you. Now, our most notable achievement is the fact that we are the first women's group to build, to have our own purpose-built building. We are trying to get the first gender and women's leadership training institute in West Africa. This is the top floor. This is partly complete. We are raising funds to complete the bottom floor, which is the hall. I don't mind raising funds here, but I don't know whether that is what I was invited <laughs> I'm just casting a hint just in case anybody sits guessing. You can come and look at it, right? I'm sure you love our work and you'll want to contribute. Also, it, as was mentioned by Tina, we are the, we were the first African group to win the coveted uh, Madeleine Albright Award. This is me and three other presidents who went to receive it in 2007. And we all, we've also shared strategies of advocacy and training in 50, and set up 50-50 clubs in South Sudan, Tanzania, and also the work in Liberia. This has led to a lot of um, significant electoral advances for female candidates. I will not accept, I will not say that it is because of my work that Ellen Johnson Salif was, was appointed, but I was the one who trained the female candidates doing that. If you go to Liberia, they will also sing the side-by-side -side song with the Liberian accent, yes. So, um, next steps. We have to strengthen our efforts as women. We have to network across sectors, education, business, industry, culture, and arts. We have to strategize to increase influence as well as numbers. We have to focus on key institutions. Women must have a common approach and a, a common agenda. And we must realize that this is not about self-interest. It is not just about Faduma. It is about Somalia. It is about the development of our nation. Our nation in Sierra Leone is economically down right now. We need a strengthened democracy to help us survive. We must recognize as women that any progress we make may lead to resistance and backlash, and we must be prepared for that. This is one of the, executive, one of the pictures of the executive. I thank you all for listening. I have this cloth, if you want. We have it for sale. We are raising funds, and I have some... <laughs> As a, as a true West African, I also have some booklets about 50-50 group. If you are interested, you can see me at the end. But thank you very much for listening. Thank you, uh, Dr. Majex Walker, for a very um, great uh, presentation. I think the side-by-side -side song will uh, live um, in LSE history for, for many years to come. We'll sing it every International Women's Day. 
Our final speaker is uh, Dr. Joyce Majuru. Uh, Dr. Majuru is the uh, president of the National People's Party, a political party officially reg registered with the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, ZEC, on the 12th of February 2016. She is challenging President Robert Mugabe for the presidency in the forthcoming Dr. Majuru has served in government for a total of 34 years. She was a cabinet minister from 1980 to 2004, then vice president from December 2004 to 2014. Dr. Majuru has a diploma in adult education, a BSc in management and entrepreneurial development studies, and an MSc in strategic management and a PhD from the University of Zimbabwe Faculty of Commerce. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming... Thank you. What a topic. <laughs> Women leaders on the global stage. Lessons for Africa. Our host, Professor Tim Allen, and event chair, our chair lady, Tina, fellow distinguished panelists, invited guests, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> I feel highly honored to be a panelist on this day, discussing women leaders' challenges and opportunities they are confronted with in their endeavor to change the world. I'm sorry I've been coughing, so if you hear me barking, excuse me. <laughs> I should, however, hasten to say that a more apt topic should have been women leaders on the global stage, lessons from Africa and for Africa. As women in leadership, we have stories, very powerful testimonies that, if shared, would inspire a lot of women globally. We are not just receivers of lessons from elsewhere. We also impact, impart knowledge from our unique experiences as women brought up in extremely unique circumstances. I'm happy though that we are having to celebrate this year's International Women's Day at a time Africa has woken up to reality of the marginalization of women, especially the girl child. The African Union Commission declared 2015 as the year of the women's empowerment and development towards Africa's agenda 2063. Women represent more than half 
of the 1.2 billion African population, with more than 50% of, of, of it under 25 years of age. Women political leaders in different countries across Africa face numerous barriers to entry into politics or in the political field. I think you have heard what Maduma has, has said. Women political leaders in different countries across Africa face numerous um, barriers to entry into political into the political field. While there are these challenges, they are not entirely insurmountable and unique to Africa. We celebrate great leaders like Angela Merkel of Germany, Selif Jensen of Liberia, and Theresa May of United Kingdom, among others. Currently, there are about 25. Currently, there are about 25. Uh, there are about 25 countries in the world with female leaders. It is also it, it is also heartening to note that Africa is coming around in terms of these stereotypes, seeing that the first lady chair of the African Union has just completed a term of office, something that was inconceivable a decade ago. In the same commission, women hold 50% of the African Union Parliament seats. Notwithstanding such milestones, the African continent remains highly patriarchal society. Due to the numerous armed conflicts in Africa, which is home to nearly half of 42 ongoing conflicts, African women are in the majority and in charge of households and are key food producers. They represent more than 43% of the agricultural labor force. Some of them are direct participants in the struggle itself. In these conflicts, women are often victims of sexual predators who take, who take advantage of the war. The sad story of the Nigerian girls kidnapped and abused by the Boko Haram comes to mind. It, hap it happened, I happened to have spent about eight years fighting in the war. I'm a soldier. Please don't run away. <laughs> <laughs> fighting in the war of liberation, fighting for the land and against social discrimination. I had to fight to rise through the ranks to become a commander and a trainer of combatants, mostly men. While fighting the enemy in our military camps, I was confronted by a different war, a war I had to fight against fellow comrades. Almost on a daily basis, I had to stand up against the abuse of female freedom fighters by male commanders who were above my military rank. It was a cause I dedicated my life, my life to once, a cause for which I almost lost my life. 
My wartime experiences were an orientation to leadership from which I learned to be tough when confronted by soft challenges and be cool and calm and maybe soft when, going, when the going became rough, really, really, really tough. I learned to be calm in the uh, midst of storms. Post-independence, I was fortunate to have been appointed into government at a tender age of 25, a privilege that was not afforded to many women gallant fighters. I rose through the ranks in government to the position of vice president of the republic. I also owe a lot of academic surgeon that I undertook while balancing equally important roles as a young wife, a mother, a cabinet minister, and at the tail end of it, a vice president. I'm glad that as Minister of Government, through the Minister of Women Affairs that I was heading, we passed good laws on women's emancipation that included the Adult Age of Majority Act of 1982 and the Matrimonial Causes Act of 1985, among others. The former <coughs> act allowed women to own property in their own names, and the latter recognized for the first time in our country, a wife's direct and indirect contribution to family property to be considered when distributing assets should divorce occur. We believe, however, we believe, however, that these girls are now being threatened. Sorry, we believe However, that these rights are now being threatened by a government that does not respect private property rights. As women, more so as leaders in our country, we are fighting to ensure private property rights are respected for the security of investments and creation of a conducive environment to doing business by the local and foreign investor. Today, these look like a pretty obvious provisions attendant in every democratic progressive society. But in Zimbabwe then, it was a difficult task to decontrast and disabuse men of the Victorian male chauvinism that colonialism had reinforced on an equally patriarchal African tradition. Gains might be coming slowly, but we stand proud today that we have a constitution. We have a constitution crafted in 2013 during the tenure of our inclusive government that enshrines gender equality and outlaws discrimination. We have also achieved, through the 2013 constitutional provisions, a doubling of women representation in Parliament to 35%. It is a milestone, but our politics remains violent and repulsive of women participation. 
The story of Rwandan women shining with 64% of the country's legislative seats inspires us to strive for more. We African women are excellent in multitasking, <laughs> but it takes a lot of force, focus and determination. I'm happy that the many years in the bush and many years in government have prepared me to match whatever challenges come my way. When it became apparent that I was the clear successor to President Robert Mugabe's Mugabe, men seemed not ready for, for that, although the nation had fully endorsed my candidature. What is said in most of these cases of, of persecution and abuse of women is that many find willing accomplices in, the, in, some of the, in some of our own fellow women. This was the case in Zimbabwe, where those at the forefront of sidelining side me were fellow women. This is a cancer that we must deal with as women if we are to advance in various leadership positions. We left ZANU-PF to form ZIMPF, a new po uh, position, sorry, a new opposition political party with liberation war credentials, which we have rebranded to, to the National People's Party. Unfortunately, we had carried along male chauvinism, chauvinists who wanted me to front their struggle. They wanted to capitalize on my brand and leverage support with the citizens, but had plans to ditch me for a male leader once I had done all the groundwork. <laughs> I endured results, insults, and abuse from these male opportunists until I had to pick myself up in the interest of the common good. This is the background to the so-called split that you might have read about. I had to exercise my authority and expelled the rogue elements, sadly. <laughs> sadly, as always, they are willing accomplices to help the men advance their cause. As I prepare for my presidential bid for our 2018 elections, I take comfort in the fact that others have done it. The experience this, this far has hardened me and prepared me for the great task I had. We pray that more and more women in Africa find the courage to challenge the status quo and seek to bring sanity to governance that has for long remained a male-dominated arena. In Zimbabwe, we have made significant strides that we can leverage on. Section 56, subsection 2 of our constitution states that 
Women and men have the right to equal treatment, including the right to equal opportunities in political, economic, cultural, and social spheres. It is a significant achievement that we, however, are fighting to be implemented through parliamentary acts that Mugabe's government is not keen to promulgate. The women of Zimbabwe, under the auspices of the Women's Coalition, a network of non-governmental organizations working on women's issues, prior to my coming here, gathered and impressed on me to take our Section 56 campaign to you. So we say, help us. Give us solidarity. Put us in your prayers. Give us wise counsel. We have a duty as women gifted in primary socialization of children to instill non-violent culture in our children to ensure a violence-free society. Women suffer more than men in political conflicts. Women just fear for physical harm on their bodies. Women suffer both physical and emotional damage as we fall victim to both grievous physical insult and dire emotional distress as a result of rape, a form of violence mostly meted on women in conflict zones. While we are glad that political party that I lead, the National People's Party, is currently drawing laws that criminalize sexual harassment in our party, we feel more has to be done for sexual harassment to be eradicated from our, political, our politics altogether. In conclusion, Madam Chair, I challenge fellow women leaders in more advanced countries in the world to rally behind their female counterparts, fighting the battle that they have had to wage and won. I feel that as a woman, we have a big role to play, not only in our domestic politics, but in world affairs and our unique experiences as Africans provide a new spectrum through which we can change the world. Let us support one another for a better world moderated by mothers who are experts in multitasking. I thank you and God bless you. Well, um, thank you very much to our panellists for um, three excellent presentations, really inspiring us and setting the scene. Um, it's now over to you. Uh, it's uh, your opportunity to ask questions of our panellists. And in doing so, I would ask that you start with your name and any affiliations and wait for one of our stewards with a roving mic uh, to get to you. So where are we going to start? Okay, there's a lady here in the uh, brown jumper, just in the, in the front there. 
Thank you very much. Um, we have another question over there. We'll take a few questions and then I'll invite the panelists to ask, to answer. Yes, Hello. Please. Okay, can we uh, listen to the question, please? Thank you. Hello there, good evening. My name is Valerie Mullam with the International Growth Center um, located here at the IGC, uh, at the London School of Economics, sorry. Um, I would thank you first of all as well from my side for the truly inspirational uh, contributions. It was really interesting and um, I was deeply moved. Um, I would like to actually um, frame my question in the background of, against the background of not just women in Africa but also globally and not just women in politics but also women in, in other industries and other aspects of life. Um, what, in your view, um, can women do in order to support other women and to basically yeah, get us closer to the goal of achieving 50-50? But also, what can other men do? Um, what, what is their role and what, um, what can we do as women to include them in this movement? Thank you very much. I think we'll start with those two questions, and I'd like to invite each of the panellists to answer, and if I may, uh, as briefly as you're able to, so that we can get round um, and take as many questions as possible. So, Dr. Majuri, if you'd like to start, please. I think it's on already. Thank you very much. What contribution uh, are we making to our women? As a leader, you have to make sure that you are the light. So by so doing, your ways have to be very much different from many other women so that you actually show that you have the ability to give them something different. For my party, we have already started drafting and crafting issues that the present government has failed to give to the people. And being in government for so many years myself, I know those shortcomings, I know those areas, and I know how best they can be given to our people. For, for instance, our economy has died. We no longer have any thriving economy. We no longer have our own currency. Right now we are using United States dollar. We tried to print what we call bond note, and I've, I've been quoted to have called it toilet paper because, <laughs> because uh, we, can't, we can't use it anywhere in any other country. Once you move out of the country, it ceases to work. 
So what I'm trying to do now is to make sure that our women are at the helm of bringing back that economy. So I'm trying to give more confidence to women because we are in majority. We are the workers, like what I've already said. Coming to the point of uh, how many can be included in the 50-50 movement, yes, we have not uh, uh, done it in Zimbabwe, but we have already started, you know, you know, talking about it. What we are now trying to do is to make sure that women, especially this party that is being led by a woman, more favors are given to women so that they are the ones who should be championing in all those areas that are affecting our society because we are the people who do the chores than men. So they are lucky I'm there. I'll make sure women get what they want. Thank you. Dr. Majax Walker, please. Well, I, as far as the first question is concerned, I will give an example of a woman in Sierra Leone who, when she became the Auditor General, she exposed all those who stole Ebola money. <laughs> if it was a man who was in charge of the audit, he would have, he would have been scared to say it. <laughs> that is just a little case study. But you all know that women are natural caregivers. Women have a heart. Women are non-confrontational. Women will heal the nation. That is why after the war, we needed women in power to help heal the wounds. They are the ones who took care of the soldiers during the war. They are the ones who took care of the children. They were the ones who gave care to most of those. So women have that natural tendency, and women are less corrupt. I won't say they are not corrupt. They are less corrupt. Now, um, how can women support each other? It is very important for us to understand that we must stand by each other. We must stop envying each other. We should give them, we should give our fellow women as much support as we can so that at least when they are on the top, many people accuse us of being elitist. They say 50-50 group, we are elitist. <laughs> but we always fight back and say it is because we are educated that we are able to, we are trying to help those who are not as educated as us. So women should always try to stand by each other and support each other each other. And as far as the men, men campaign is com concerned, you all know of, of the He for She campaign that has been launched recently by UN. And they have just launched, they launched it last week in Sierra Leone in our House of Parliament. And we feel that instead of having, preaching our gospel to just women, we should preach to the men because when you have, when you pass the message through the men, it gets there faster and people understand because then they realize what, how meaningful it is. And we have practical example of doing this in, in, in Sierra Leone. Whenever we went to the, villages up country. We start by going to the chiefs and convincing them. When we preach our message to the chiefs and they we win them over, then it is easy for them to get the members of their of, of their community to support us. So we most of the time we do it through the men. And if we do it through the men we will succeed. So it is very important that we try and get the gender-sensitive men on our side. When once they understand the message, we are their mothers, we are their, we are their daughters, we are their aunts, we are their sisters. So, of course, they will understand and they will help us. Thank you very much. Faduma Daib. 
Um, thank you. Um, I agree with what uh, Dr. Joyce and Nemata have actually said. I'll just add a bit to it. In terms of the first question, what contribution have I actually brought to the table? Um, as I mentioned in my talk, uh, before I, I announced my candidacy or before I came forward, um, I think women were mostly really uh, running as a, to prove a point, but not really taking the initiative very seriously. Um, I was actually very happy to see that instead of negotiating for just, you know, um, parliamentary seats, as we were normally doing, as a result of stepping forward, we had a lot of women who were saying, you know what, why can't we aspire to the highest office in the country? And as a result, I'd like to believe actually that that's why we have now 28% um, of the gender quota field. You know, women came forward, young, highly educated women who really wanted to make uh, a change and who really felt that their time had come, stepped forward and said, you know what, we are going to try and make a change, at least from the lower rugs, to make sure that we are able to fill the executive office. Um, and I would like to believe I somehow contributed to that. Um, in, in regards to your second uh, question as to what women can do, I think if you as a woman, you can, you know, you can't support another female candidate or you have a problem with that female candidate, I think the least we can do is to stop attacking these women. Mm -hmm. Stop attacking these women. Stop doing the dirty work for men who are cowards and who don't want to step forward and, and you know, to be seen attacking women. Um, I've always said, please, the least you can do is to keep your mouth shut and stop, you know, uh, clicking and writing on social media. That in itself is, a, is, is major progress, if we can do that. And really to, to you know, also have a heart-to-heart -heart discussion as to why we feel we must resist these women. What is it in me or in another candidate that forces another woman to actually come forward and attack her uh, and, and, and try to derail what she's doing? In terms of what men can do, I think younger men are often quite supportive. In my case, they were the ones who stepped forward who were helping me to um, impart my message and to really amplify what I was saying. Older men, it takes a, a while for them to come on board. But once you really also start having that discussion, one-on-one -on -one discussion with them, which you know gives them an opportunity to challenge your platform, your ideas, your perceptions, your observations, uh, they tend to be quite, I would say, uh, flexible in in willing to change their opinions. At least that's what I have experienced uh, with them. And younger men are really, as I said, uh, on board, and they really do want to see a change in leadership, and they actually believe that women should be given an opportunity, and they should be tried, uh, you know, so that we at least can say, well, we had a woman, and she failed in what she was doing. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you. I'd like to invite, oh, we've got quite a few hands. I'd like to invite uh, two more questions. And um, also, if you would like to direct your question to a particular panellist, please say so, um, or to all panellists. But um, I'm just trying to get um, through. Uh, there's a lady on the end there and the lady on the end there. Here with the plaids. Yes, so one, two, hand up. Yes, um, hi. Um, good evening to each and every one of you. Um, I'm so grateful to hear all of your encouraging words and empowerment for you, you as, a, as a woman in Africa. And uh, this afternoon, I was kind of scared going here. I was hesitant to, to attend this event because I was having this thought of, I'm scared of what other people or other women will think about me. But nevertheless, I just have the courage to, you know, step up, step out, and to listen, to be empowered by, by a woman now in front of me. I am from the Philippines. I am a transgender woman. And all these empowerment words and encouragement are this only for women, or it would be also um, an intersectionality to towards um, the transgender um, transgender woman like me? If I'll be in the Philippines, I will definitely have no legal protection from my country. So now I'm here in United Kingdom. I am so grateful that I am who I am and free to be who I am. So my question again, to celebrate the International Women's Day, your words of empowerment and encouragement, are these only for women or, all, or, or, or are also including transgender women? Thank you. Take our second question. Um, Pano, my name is Regina Jangere. I'm the editor of the New African Woman magazine. Uh, my question is uh, maybe uh, uh, to any of the panelists. You know, talking politics and empowering women, uh, you know, with two uh, presidential candidates sitting in front of us, which is really, really uplifting. Um, politics is money, as we know. And in Africa, I think we are so known to be uh, exclude women financially, starting from the home. I don't know how you actually uh, go around that yeah, when you are talking about you know, going for higher political office, when uh, the same people that you are opposing to have all the means to production, they have all the means to finances, and even the toilet money can still go and bribe the woman not to vote for you. So I don't know how you are actually going around in terms of uh, Financial inclusion and empowering women financially in order actually to reach that high office because it doesn't come cheap. 
Thank you very much. Um, okay, so I'm going to invite the panel, um, starting with Fadumo uh, this time. So we'll start at that end. We have two questions uh, addressed to the panel. Uh, one regarding International Women's Day. Is it for uh, transgender women? Does that include transgender women as well? Um, and then the second one regarding uh, 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 financial aspects of uh, political um, campaigns. Yes, I would like to believe that um, the inspirational messages that we're imparting also applies to transgender women. Why shouldn't it? They are also human beings. I, I'm actually very touched <laughs> that you are in the audience and you are asking uh, this, this question. Um, I remember being asked a similar question uh, last year, uh, only it was a, a Somali man um, who was asking that question at the time. And the question he asked was, should he be ostracized, uh, stigmatized and discriminated against because of his lifestyle? And if I were to come into office, what would I do about it? And I had responded that I would arrest anyone who did anything to anyone else because of their lifestyle or what they perceived uh, as them doing, uh, which would be illegal. And I'm against anyone taking the law into their own hands. I, I believe we have the same rights. Um, and I would like you to to see what we are doing and what we are saying as also applying to you. And thank you for asking that question. Um, I will leave the second question to, to Nemata because I think I, I, I had addressed that by saying that I didn't have um, the opportunity to, to fundraise uh, because of the challenges, the obstacles that I was facing from from women, so I, I largely had to use my own savings, and and you know the, the heartwarming thing in this was that the people who actually wanted to fund and who wanted to help me were were foreigners; they were not Somalis, but also really there were men, there were um, also Somali women young Somali women who also wanted to, to fundraise. And so I'm not saying, you know, that um, all of them were against it. But it wasn't enough to get us moving forward. Now, <clears throat> congratulations. I'm so proud of you. And I'm happy that you recognize that we are talking about all women, transgender, disabled, physically challenged, whatever. We stand to support everybody who is a woman. Congratulations for being so bold and for standing out, and I wish you well. And please don't hesitate to feel, don't, don't ever consider the fact that when we talk about discrimination, it's, we, we are fighting for discrimination against all women to be abolished, and we will, we will achieve it. Thank you again. Thank you. I am proud of you.
Now the next question is, I wish I had enough time to talk about our work. Because whenever we train women, the first question they ask, they expect us to pay their nomination fees. Because many of these women, you whet their appetites, you give them the training, you give them the confidence, they now know how to, they even practice how to deliver messages during our training sessions. No, not just singing. <laughs> we give them the opportunity to practice how to deliver messages when they are campaigning. When once they've got all of that, you've whetted the appetite, they want to stand and they don't have money. It's a problem for us. So now we are trying to diversify and we are trying to look at ways of organizing economic empowerment training, um, raising funds for these women. We've set up trust funds before. We've done fundraising. We've done all kinds of things to help at least pay their nomination fees or help them do stickers and t-shirts, because no international organization will fund that, because they will feel that it's like coming to stage a coup in your country. So it is very, very, just last week I was talking to Marina about Marina Nano, about trying to help farmers, women farmers, trying to help them modernize their farming so that at least they can get something out of it. It is a very, very important question. It is a big, big barrier that prevents our women from going forward. And I'm so happy that you are here to live the reality of what we have been preaching all the time. We preach it, we read about it, it's literature. But when you see somebody who has actually experienced it, it makes a difference. It's a case study. Honestly, I mean, I'll put it in one of... I am taking permission now to, for you to allow me to use your story as one of the... <laughs> no, see, serious is speaking. I'm writing a book entitled 12, 12, I'm sorry, 12 Steps to Women Winning Elections. And yours will be one of the case studies in one of the chapters. <laughs> I, I, I will accept that if the money that you will get I will be I want to see you become a president, so I will do that. I'll do all I can. You deserve okay. it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Dr. Madhuri. Thank you, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, and I'm sure the, the two ladies who have spoken before me have done it on my behalf in thanking our transgender lady to, to be here tonight. So I want to thank for the boldness that you have shown. So please, I think uh, we'll be able to, to even share some of uh, your, your thoughts and ideas and feelings at home. But let me tell you, when you want to be a leader, you want to be a leader of everyone. Even the snakes, the witches, and everything. <laughs> That are, that are in that country yeah. have to be looked after by the head of state. So our party is non-discriminatory. Our party would want to respect everybody in whatever form they are. So let me come to the money issue. When you start thinking about money, you will not leave your house. <laughs> because it's not easy. It's not easy to just pick up money. You just have to work strategic about it 
and get people to understand who you are and especially when you want to be head of state when you have a part of your own your policies your programs have to be appealing once the people feel that they are going to be covered or protected they want to be part of that once you convince them then money won't be a problem but even though i don't have money madam when you start raising money please post <laughs> post some post some to me because madam's time is far from coming mine is near What is your next so, election? So, what? Oh, I hope you understand. I'm coming there. <laughs> so, in order to respond to the lady's question, you know that women are um, less privileged in terms of the economic affairs. And what we are trying to do as the party is to make sure that our policies really try and look after women's expectations in the economic arena. So that is yet to come but for what we are doing right now we have tried to show our people that money comes second what you have to do first is to make sure that you are clear with what you want to achieve then money will follow money follows the program if there is no program then you won't be able to see money i thank you thank you i'm trying to get some Uh, hands uh, towards the back um somebody on the edge there and this lady here with the scarf yes and then at the back the man at the back there's another lady there Hello. Um, my name is Hayat. I'm a final year student here at the LSE. Um, and my question is mainly directed to Fadumo. Um, thank you for that talk. It's really inspiring, especially as a young Somali woman myself. Um, my question is about being part of the Somali diaspora and whether you feel that being a woman and being from the diaspora as well. Do you feel like that was a secondary thing that held you back? Because I often find that um, we are stigmatized as having been too westernized and feeling like now we're just going to be going back and imposing a new way that isn't part of our culture. So do you feel like that is one of the reasons why you were rejected from the, by the people there? Um, thank you. And the gentleman at the back with the striped shirt... and glasses y- yes on the edge see what's asking question uh, right yes he's he's woken up now yes it's a lady oh it's a lady i beg your pardon <laughs> i'm sitting here in <laughs> sorry here. i'll put my glasses on <laughs> Good evening. My apologies. Net file and I'm I was born in Sierra Leone but live here. Um it's so good to see you again Faduma and to my salon sister. Thank you so much for what you're doing. My question is more a question. Should you take out my when it gives aid to a country like Sierra Leone for example, should it have conditions attached that if they do not promote or progress on gender friendly issues or a gender friendly agenda that they wouldn't get the aid next time because i've been looking at all the money that Britain has given to Sierra Leone for example i've looked at other countries 
And I'm here to see the impact it's made on women's lives, particularly young girls. So I'd really like all of you to answer that question for me. Thank you very much. We have a question directed at Fadumo, if you could answer both, and then um, our other panellists, the second question uh, regarding aid. Thank you. I think that's a very interesting question. Um, I don't think the fact that I came from the diaspora, I don't think that was a big problem because um, almost 70% of the cabinet comprised of people from the diaspora. I mean, if you look at Somali politics, um, majority of the politicians are from the diaspora. So that wasn't, wasn't seen as, a, as an issue per se. Um, and whether me coming from the diaspora and being a woman, whether that was a problem, I think, yes, the fear that, oh, she's coming now with all these Western ideas and she's going to influence our women and, uh, you know, as I said, that being seen as something that was un-Islamic and also going against the Somali culture and tradition, that was, that was a challenge. But when I address that by using religious scripture and um, alluding to the fact that we don't hold men to the same strict standards um, it, it died it died away mm-hmm. and so it's it's interesting you should ask this you know when I went back to Somalia in 2005 um, to, to go and help I was working with the UN at the time um, the first thing that was said to me was and you know I left Finland because I was being told you came here you're stealing our jobs you know and others were saying you are on social welfare you're you're you know lazy and and so I thought okay I'm going to run away from this and go <laughs> go to Somalia and and help my people and strangely enough you know when when I was told why are you coming back here you know with the, you you're coming to take our jobs um, you ran away uh, got an education and now you're coming to challenge us and you want to take uh, my my job it was very shocking I was like this is deja vu you know the only difference is that it's it's in in, in Somalia and so really um, I think for female politicians every excuse will be used to make sure that you don't run and you you will come to the realization that it has nothing to do with you. You know, Josh was talking about the fact that you need to have a platform, a mandate in order for you to fundraise and get funding. Well, that doesn't apply to the Somali context because it's premised, I mean, the electoral system itself is premised on the 4.5 clan-based system, and that's a system that completely excludes women. So no matter whether you have a, a mandate, a platform, it doesn't really help because the game is set against you and all doors are closed and they're going to remain like that unless you learn to kick them down and that's what we're trying to do. In terms of the question that you asked, should aid be conditional? This this is very interesting because we have the 30% gender quota in Somalia, and that came about as a result of strong pressure from the international community. <laughs> now, if you have an outdated, you know, clan-based system, how can you impose a modern system on top of it and hope that it will yield results? 
And so, you know, these two things cannot go hand in hand where there, there's a huge problem because when you have clan elders selecting the women who should fill the gender quota and that is out of your control, then you know that it's not about quantity, it's not about numbers, it's actually about quality. You can have one woman sitting there and she can do a lot of good and you could have 15 and they wouldn't do anything. And so how do you make the two systems work together is really something that um, we, we, can, we can talk about. And I, I do think that aid should be conditional, but again, it depends where uh, you are going to make uh, those conditionalities apply. I think to a large extent, a lot of it is conditional. Honestly, as early as when I was working for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in Ghana, the question is always asked. You must fill in a blank as to what you will do for the women. But I don't think it's, it matters to a lot of our countries. I don't think there are heavy penalties. At the beginning of our, we have an election um, assistance program in 5050 that about 13 activities that we carry out. One of the first activities is to hold a dialogue forum with political parties, hold a dialogue forum with people in, in government. And you talk to them about this. And they, 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 we bring in the international community to take part in those discussions so that at least they will understand that they must do something because if the international community was not stipulating uh, or putting up um, uh, um, penalties, they would not have launch the He for She campaign. We get them to put a lot of pressure on our political party leaders. We get them to put a lot of pressure on our people in government. But I don't know, we just have, I don't know how to smash patriarchy. We just have to smash it. <laughs> I, don't think, I, don't think, I don't think there is any conditionality that can smash it. It is ingrained. We just have to continue. And we have to continue to put pressure on the international community for them to put all these conditionalities. If we don't, I don't know. But it's a difficult one, seriously. It's a difficult one. We are not giving up, though. Mm -hmm. But it's, I don't know. Sorry. Thank you. Um, the issue with the diasporians at home, when I was still in government, vice president responsible for social ministries, there was a time when I was asked to head a recruitment program. Recruitment program because we had um, lost a lot of experienced people. They had gone out because in search of uh, economic uh, you know, survival. And when these diasporians were, you know, answering to our call, they found resistance back at home. The question was, why are you now coming back? <laughs> and these were the, sorry to use this word, the mediocre workers that were now worried about losing their jobs or losing their positions which does not you know go according to their qualifications i still remember uh, doctors and nurses that were coming back home those that were running clinics and surgeries out here when they came back people literally 
questioned them, gave them tough time until they had to pack and come back. And which was a sad thing because at home these are institutions that are suffering from you know having shortages of qualified people so you can imagine we have to do a lot in order to educate our locals that some of the problems they are made by ourselves we have to accept that we now have qualified people who are now staying outside our countries and we are again going to those countries to seek help help in terms of health uh, you know you know you know uh, solutions uh, education solutions to some extent, even those industries that have closed, they have not gone too far away from our borders. They have closed and they have used the neighboring countries to manufacture things that we are following there, to use our meager foreign currency, buying them back in the country, which we should have saved. So it's really education that we have to give to each other, because if we don't do that, we will continue to suffer these setbacks. So let me also um, uh, say that uh, we, we as, as a party, we have a policy where we are trying to talk about the government right now because we know we have not less than 3 million people who have gone outside the country. And these are people that have their families there now. And we need these people to come back home and vote. And they can't vote from where they are. When they are supposed to be voters, true voters in the, you know, for the, for the coming election. So as opposition parties, my party included, we are working very hard so that diasporians know that they are an important entity. We want them to come back home, vote with us, come back home, help us, join us in rebuilding the economy of Zimbabwe. So, um, when it comes to aid money, aid money is good. Aid money is needed when we are supposed to start something that we can then work on, not to continue to be given aid money. We want to aid money in order to create our industries, in order to create jobs that can now run on their own. Because right now, we have a problem. I once was Minister of Community Development and we used to go to the communities, giving them resources to start projects. So that project used to be identified with the minister. Once the minister leaves that place, that project dies because the minister is not coming all the time. So this is the problem with aid money to us as Africans. Let's not think aid money can give us the everlasting solution. Let's use the aid money to start our own and to be able to on our own. Because the moment you fail to get it, you are angry. You no longer believe in what you can do on your own. So please, 
Let's look for aid money as seed money. And then we continue building on it on our own. Thank you. Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, my name's Dr. Rhonda Zalesny-Green, and I work for the GSMA, which is the the Global Mobile Industry Trade Association. And so I'm very interested um, when you're talking about advocacy efforts, when you're talking about promoting yourselves and, and other women, how is technology and specifically mobile technology and social media playing a role in that? Uh, Dr. Mujuru, I, I remember quite recently uh, in Zimbabwe, there were a lot of uh, protests that were kind of propelled by hashtags on Twitter uh, in Zimbabwe advocating for change. People are tired of what's happening. So uh, I would be quite interested to, to hear your perspective on that. And then, of course, from the other panels, how you are actually using social media or, or mobile technology yourselves to do some of your advocacy work. Thank you. The person there. Yes, please go ahead. Hi, my question is directed at Dr. Mujuru. Um, a 32-year-old Zimbabwean, so it's very exciting to get to talk to you today. Um, and this is a Zimbabwe-specific uh, question. So, where are you? Oh, yes. Okay. The white shirt. In <laughs> white. <laughs> Yeah? Okay. I'm over. Yes. Yes, please continue. I'm absolutely, like, excited. I think lots of Zimbabweans are to, like, try and smash the patriarchy. I get that. I'm with you. Uh, there's only one thing that I think it would be is an impediment to you as a political figure in this new incarnation in Zim, and that's a credibility issue. For my whole life of, 20, of 32 years, I have known you to be in government. Right? In a fairly short time, under two years, you now have changed into independent, independent-style party. What I'd like to know from you is, are you willing, this is just a Zimbabwean to Zimbabwean, human to human, Woman to woman, to take responsibility for your part within this government that you got into in 1980. Are you willing to take responsibility for the issues faced by Zimbabwe because of that government? Because I think the second you do that, it would help us see you legitimately wanting to change to a political Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I'd like uh, Dr. Majuru to start uh, by answering both questions, and then I'd like uh, the other panellists to answer the earlier question. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, Lady Zimbabwe, (laughs) thank you. Um, That question has been asked many times. 
I've told you that I've been Minister of Community Development. I did not say I've been Minister of Water during the 34 years in government. I have been a lone voice and always drowned. My responsibilities have been with the people. If you follow my trail, you'll see what I did personally. I have driven across and around Zimbabwe. I can tell you areas where community programs meant for the upliftment of families have been destabilized by the very government I was serving. For anything that has happened while I was in government, yes, I take responsibility. Because, because some of those things happened when I did not know. But I was involved by extension. So the reason why it has been so easy, even for the two years I have not been in government, easy for me even to visit Matabeleland, where the genocide took place, is because I have not been afraid to go and face those people and make them feel and make them see that I am part of the solution that we are facing in Zimbabwe. That I have decided to be the bridge to the new Zimbabwe that we want. Because I know some of those things I had when, during the 10 years of me being vice president, proposed some of the solutions which were never taken seriously. So me being the head of state, I'm telling you, it won't take me three years you'll be able to see a huge, and that I underline, difference. Because I have no problem in dealing with the issues that are affecting people. And I am a people's person. So I have no problem. Seeing you there, I can identify myself with, with you. Because I have no problem directed or any direct any any directed problem between the two of us. So when you see somebody holding back, you must convince yourself that this person has a personal input in some of the problems that Zimbabwe has faced. But if you are involved by extension, why are you afraid of talking about those things? And if you have solutions to those things, why are you not able to discuss those solutions with people that are involved or affected? And this is exactly what I'm doing. And I have found comfort by the acceptance that I've been given by the majority of people. Hence, my you know, you know, um, launching or rebranding my party to National People's Party because those that wanted to abuse and misuse the trust, I wanted to show them that I'm not somebody who is up to something sinister. I'm somebody who is up to solutions for what the people are facing today.
I heard you well, ma'am. Your fa- your question about the hashtag, the media, and what have you? You know, Zimbabwe, we are the top top two, top three most educated nations in Africa. And when you hear people talk about media using hashtag and what have you, it's a true story. Even a head boy, head boy meaning a person who tends, who looks after cattle, can afford a phone in Zimbabwe, can speak English, can give you directions without a problem. So using these modern technologies in Zimbabwe is not a problem. But the problem with using these methods for political campaigns and political purposes, we haven't reached that, that level. We are not the Obamas of this world, you know, when it comes to using the media of this type to mobilize people. I don't think if that is what you refer to, because your last bit was a bit um, uh, problematic for me to hear. But what I'm trying to say is, yes, to some extent, or to a great extent, media can be used. And we do have that coverage in Zimbabwe. I think our rural coverage surpasses 50%. And uh, in towns, we are close to almost 100% usage of the media. But it's only those town dwellers that benefit from some of these methods. But rural people, and that's where we derive our comfort from, we, we physically visit them and, and talk to them and identify ourselves with the problems that they face. I hope I've answered you. Thank you. And I'd like to invite Dr. Majek Walker and Faduma um, Day to um, answer the question very briefly, please, because we're out of time. I wish the lady sitting in front of me who asked the first question can tell us why she asked that question. You remember saying, what do women bring to the table? That was the first, very first question that was asked this afternoon. Yes. Why did you ask that question? Can you tell us? No, it was here. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm curious. Yes, she's the one. Yes, exactly. Um, it was inspired by the, um, the, the, the title of this, uh, of this conference, after what, what do women leaders, what do, do they bring to the table as leaders? Um, isn't this why, why we are here for, for Women's Day? Um, is there anything specific? My question was because I would like to know from you who have experienced this, who have decided to go into politics and lead your country. What what inspired you and what do you think that specifically have to bring if if anything feel different from men? Okay. I'm afraid I'm I'm going to out of time. Yes, we are out of time. We have a question on the table. I'll just say this quickly. um, Um, The reason why I'm saying this is the question that was asked by the Zimbabwe lady it points to it gives it brings a lot of feelings because when when once a woman succeeds after going through all the hell when she gets into parliament she it is very difficult for her to survive. Many of the parliamentarians don't want them there. I can imagine you sitting in a government where nobody will listen to you. 
I can imagine you fighting for your voice to be heard. Do you see what I mean? So there are those who will understand. There are those who will understand the extent to which her power she had. It was not limitless. That is why it is important that she becomes president. It will be. It will be a change. Yes. Now, the next point is, I want to point out to you that the 50-50 group is in the process of setting up an internet cafe because we recognize the importance. <laughs> we've, we've actually, no, seriously, allow me to say this. We've actually got a room dedicated to that. We received $5,000 from the Rotary Club of Indianapolis, and we've got about seven computers, and we are looking for funds to operationalize. Go on, go on. <laughs> I, I should I should learn the art of pitching. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teaching you fundraising. <laughs> um, my actually political platform or mandate was um, social media based. My campaign was a social media based campaign. Because I declared my candidacy in September 2014. And so from 2014 until 2016 January, I was in, you know, aggressively doing uh, campaigning on social media. I went from uh, being someone who wasn't known to becoming a, a, a visible, well-known person inside the country, but also outside of the country. There are a lot of people who see me on the street, you know, not just Somalis, who'll say, oh, you are Fadou you know, you're that woman who is on Twitter and uh, running for the <laughs> office in, in Somalia. So, um, and as a result, I was actually able to amplify my message. I was... Uh, able to access a lot of households that wouldn't probably have known about my existence. So social media is very important and I think this is something that is going to become more um, important as, as um, women come forward to uh, or their numbers are increased in political uh, participation. I actually think um, a lot of the older women uh, perhaps don't understand how important social media is. You know, uh, my daughter had to teach me how to be on Instagram, and she was very embarrassed, like, I ran away from Facebook because of you, now you are on <laughs> on Instagram. What's wrong with you? And when she saw me on Snapchat, she said, okay, that's it. <laughs> so, but that gives you access to, you know, younger, you know, the younger generation who are, who might not be interested in Somali politics, but as a results, you know, are now really fully aware of what's going on and are, you know, very interested in, in wanting to know more about my platform and, and mandate. So. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've now come to the end of this um, fantastic event. I apologise that we've gone over the time slightly, but um, I think that we, we leave inspired, believing that the change that we want to see in Africa um, will happen. 
Um, we're grateful to you for your time, for being a fantastic audience. I would like to um, say some additional thank yous before we close. Uh, uh, Professor Tim Allen and uh, Carsten Vogel, uh, we've been working on this e event for months, um, particularly uh, Siramir Willoughby. I think this has been night and day. Uh, that we, yes, please stand up. Stand up, please. But um, we, we leave our final thanks in, in the traditional LSE wave to our august guests who have travelled, um, all have travelled into the UK uh, for this event and um, who have uh, come um, and inspired us. We've, we've danced, we've laughed, but we, we leave believing that African women are on the global uh, stage and they will change the world. So please join me.